Your done husband signed NAFTA, which was one of the worst things that ever happened well, to the manufacturing industry. That is your you opinion. go to New England, you go to Ohio, Pennsylvania, you go anywhere you want, Secretary Clinton, and you will see devastation. It's my great honor to announce that we have successfully completed negotiations on a brand new deal to terminate and replace NAFTA and the NAFTA trade agreements with an incredible new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement called USMCA. That's exactly what I said, except I used the word momentum. Momentum, same thing. Same thing. <laughs>
of what would be a U.S. framed uh, agreement on digital trade. We then walked away from it. We're now back partially with Canada and Mexico, and hopefully, if we go ahead with uh, a, a bilateral with Japan or with the right. EU, we'll at least have that on the table. I don't remember the uh, the president talking about the digital trade rules as he's talked about. Uh, maybe maybe I missed it, missed the speech, but it seems to me what he's talked about is uh, um, cars and uh, maybe uh, wage rules we've put on Mexico, and of course, milk. Those seem to be the three things that I've yes. gotten from the president's speeches on NAFTA. And two of those are, 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 are setbacks <laughs> for trade liberalization, uh, and one is a marginal, that is milk, and dairy products that well, let's let's let's, go, let's briefly go through them. Uh, what are the, the, the car rules? What's that about? Well, the car rules are about so-called rules of origin. And rules of origin really are about the percentage of something made in the United States, Canada, or Mexico, which can, which are covered by the trade liberalization that you have in the new NAFTA. Right. Uh, as opposed, if you if you have and and they used to be sixty two percent of everything like an automobile part or a whole automobile right. car had to be made in one of the three countries. Now that's been raised to seventy five percent, and so so fewer bits is, of those cars can come from other, auto suppliers yeah. elsewhere, which and would be it, what China? Yeah, or? well, it would be East Asia and China. Uh-huh. It's aimed at any one, and it could be Europe also. Right. Uh, it. It's aimed at any any country that is outside of the North America. You can tell I'm not a car guy. <laughs> what, no, that's the right. muffler? Is the muffler coming <laughs> from? I don't muffler. know. But, but parts of I the I mean, car. the parts, and, and in, you know, in some cases, they're not, I don't think there are many, but there's some cases that it's really going to be a problem that you get something from another country that's really quite important mm-hmm. uh, for that particular car. In most cases, you can begin to shift supply lines. And the Canadians and the Mexicans, um, the automobile companies, and then the governments, um, you know, th- they weren't happy with it, but it actually wasn't aimed at them. It was aimed at, at other countries. Right. Uh, so um, I think it will have a marginal effect. Uh, it, it, it's probably going to be marginally negative because it makes, if that supply chain, this is, take automobiles, that supply chain has been built up over a decade or several decades, um, then it's not going to be all that easy to shift and you may you may end up paying more. Now, you know, there unless Trump puts on the 25% tariff as a result of his, national, his false national security rationale, you still only pay 2.5%. So for a part or a car, you might – some com- com- companies might say, well, we'll just pay it and come right. in. Because is that it's be- marginally bad. Is that, be- is that because that was what the tariff was before? It's 2.5%. All right. So, right. Okay. so they, that, that's where it is, is now and will remain, as I say, unless the national security 25%. And what, but why would that, why would that, why would he uh, apply that and to whom, to which country and would he, how would Well, he's up? left it, he's exempted Canada and Mexico. Right. Uh, this is something that it, that he can do by executive agreement. <laughs> so uh, this could change, but he, they've exempted them, and he gave them, and this is another negative, he gave them a fairly loose quota. I think it's $2.6 billion worth of cars that can come in mm. with without being kicking in to a higher tariff. Okay. That is un, un, how what that tariff would be is unknown, probably 25%. It's it's very loose for, for particularly for Canada and even and the Mexicans were because they're not happy they're, they're currently they not haven't really filled that fulfilled that that and, and, and that and that new this quota is new yes so before there, there so was that's no a quota. step back from my okay. perspective right, right 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 so okay so that's sort of cars and what's going on with the minimum wage 
in with Mexico, like so many percent of cars have to be by workers. Yeah, they have that, different things that's that actually going to affect that many cars. That is one of the unreported but really terrible precedents, as far as I'm concerned. Because just think of what has happened. Uh, what you've done through a trade agreement is set a minimum wage in a particular sector in another in a country. Right. Now, let's just turn that around. Assume that, uh, that Trump had tried this in terms of, say, $30 or $35 with, on auto, with automobile companies, automobile workers in the United States. Right. I mean, this would have been by fiat overriding congressional authority or and state authority. States set minimum wages often, so you can also have a national. So can you imagine the reaction of the Congress if we had tried to do that here? This is done for Mexico. I am surprised that the Mexicans agreed to it. I think they there there are there are some games you can play with it. It doesn't go into effect until 2023. There's something that inflation. You can also play games with the definition. Are you using how how are you already? Uh, this is I should say I should back up and say this is depending on the wage rates you're who's calculating it's between four six and seven times the average wage rate right. in in I mean, I mean that makes me think though that there's enough wiggle room that that it won't apply to all cars manufactured there because it, it seems like on its face to be a ridiculous there's, there's number there's got to be something more than we know right. but it's still it, the precedent is a terrible one and is a part with, with without getting into a lot of detail here what you've really got for the last well, since the 1990s, the Democrats have been pushing to get through a trade agreement, what they cannot get through the domestic process. And that is they want the United States to accept a group of so-called core labor rights of the International Labor Organization, right. which we have never – which we have never – and so far as I can, one can see, it's, we have, there's no reason that in the near or medium future we will do that. And so what, you, what they've done by, in trade agreements is to inch up to that to try to force other countries right. to live up to these ILO agreements, whereas we are still, we are still um, not beguided by them. What they want, though, and the Democrats are already saying this, they, there is hortatory language now about these rights, mm -hmm. the labor rights. But what they really want is to put into the agreement actually a commitment by the signers of the agreement to agree to the conventions of the ILO themselves. Now, a trade agreement would trump U.S. legislation. So in a way, we're sort of backdoor agreeing. They're green. trying to get what they – yeah. Right. And, 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 and again, uh, what, are, what, what are those sort of conventions that we would be sort well, of – Well, what, what it would do would be – would upend U.S. trade U.S. labor law. Right. In the sense that right-to-work laws would go out the window. And as a matter of fact, the Canadians raised this <laughs> – Christian Freeland at one point early on said, well, we'd like to have you change your, your right-to-work laws. Also, the negotiations with public unions right. would be changed because the, there are ILO interpretations that have made it much more restrictive in what you can do. But it, as I say, it really would upend U.S. labor law. And, um, I mean, one could argue back and forth about what U.S. labor law should be, but I think it's another issue to say, okay – we can't solve it domestically. We'll go ahead and just do it internationally. Right, right, right. And then uh, come back and force the states and force the, the Congress. If it accepts the agreement, it would be accepting the new interpretation. Uh, I mean, I can't, though, I, mean I, I can't believe, though, that, um, the, that the president is sort of aware of that. Um, in a way, it looks kind of like a crafty way of getting – you know, Democrats to sign sign onto this, but that I mean that that provision I cannot believe is very widely understood by people who otherwise. Yes, I agree with that. And but I think the thing you have to keep in mind is, and we've seen this play out before. Lighthizer thinks that he can pick up Democratic support for this 
the Bush administration, the U.S. Trade Representative, yeah, the, I'm sorry, Robert Lighthouse, the U.S. Trade Representative, is angling for Democratic support. The Democrats have already said, you know, this is not enough. Right. Uh, Sandy Levin, who really leads, he's retiring this year, but it, it'll, his mantle will be taken by others. He said, you know, th- this is just a, a, a gesture; it doesn't mean a lot. That's important because this—it looks as if this agreement is going to go over to the next Congress, and if the Democrats win the House, they will certainly not accept just what. Uh, Lighthizer has offered them, and I should say there's a history here that I was involved. Offer in them as far as far as far as this as far as the labor, as far as All right. the labor. So I mean, so this so they may not. Is it not so? Things. So is it not a done deal that a Democratic Congress would approve? No, it's certainly not. They may want. They, they may want. I mean, and this would be true with Republicans if a Democratic president. They will want to put their stamp on it. Would that involves us then having to renegotiate it, going it back. Depend to the on Canadians what they want. The you can yeah. play all kinds of game with side letters, which which was done with with Clinton and NAFTA originally. Mm-hmm. So, but the point is, I don't think the, this is this is a story that's not, that's not finished. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that again, I was in, in, involved in this under under the Bush administration. Bush try and and his th- trade representative tried to mollify the Democrats with some change language, which mm-hmm. moved in their direction. The Democrats in the Congress accepted that and then then refused to ratify the three free free trade agreements that were before the Congress at the time. So I think we've got, you know, we've got a history here. And I think it's, it was a foolish thing, but I can understand. Lighthizer thinks, I think incorrectly, that he can pick up Democratic support. Uh, the third thing was uh, the milk issue, which um, it's strange because this is a, uh, there's a lot of trade that goes on between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Um, I've seen, you know, you know, a trillion dollars of trade flows going between these three countries. And it seemed like this deal was really hung up on dairy, which is a number in the, you know, the millions, tens of millions, a hundred million, I don't know, but certainly would seem to be a very small part of the trade between the U.S. and Canada. Yet it seemed to hinge on dairy well, and, and, and how difficult it is for us to export dairy to yeah. Canada. In the first place, yeah, the, the Canadian system is a terrible system. Uh, but you're right. It's really a minuscule part. Now, it, it's not. It, it seems unimportant, maybe from a Washington point of view. But if you're a dairy farmer in, in sure. Wisconsin or Michigan, or or you're representing them, it's important. But what it represents and why it became such a big political football is a classic tactic of a tactic of the president. He picks one thing. For instance, with the Europe he, Europeans, he picks the 10 percent tariff that they have on on cars and says that that identif- that sort of signifies what their trade policy is like he picked this the milk and the dairy as the as an example of somehow Canada was a protectionist country. Or certainly, Lighthizer, or certainly Lighthizer picked it. He was very well, he aware of too. these things. Yeah, he did too. Yeah. But Lighthizer knows better. Yeah. The president doesn't know better. But is there an equivalent But is there an equivalent thing on our side? Of course. Like what would be an example of something? Because I think our 25% tariff on trucks, right. our, our sugar. Our, we have the most. We have farm subsidies as well, and then farm subsidies. So right. I mean, they, that. Would so be I think people think there's the, that the it's a free trade agreement that covers absolutely everything, rather than this is an agreement that was struck, which means there's pretty much free trade, but there are these sorts of exceptions that were sort of built in at the beginning for political passage. That's true, and that and that and this is one of the exceptions. The point is that you know the United States, Canada, Mexico, and particularly the United States and Canada, and I think increasingly Mexico. Very much free trade countries, and uh, this is not only trade but but investment. But you, every country has um, you know some sensitive area that they want to seal off to some degree, at least for a time period. Often, what happens is as 
we've just seen with the United States-Korea agreement on automobiles, the 25% tariff. We first set it off, I think it was 10 years. Now we set it off for 40 years or something like that. You know, it's just, that was outrageous, but it's one of those things that countries do. Right. It's the Europe, at least the Europeans with their agricultural support system. Right. Uh, Europe right. is generally a free trade area, but it's got, you know, with the French and uh, some of the, and the Italians and some of the uh, Eastern European countries, they're very sensitive, countries, they're very sensitive about agriculture. Well, I was going to ask you, so what is, what is the point of this negotiation? But first I want to take just a quick step, up, quick step back. What was the point of the original NAFTA? Was it, to, was it to increase economic growth and productivity and jobs here? Was it about uh, helping, you know, you know bring, make the Mexican economy sort of, you know, you know advance that and uh, make it a more prosperous economy? Uh, what, what, what was the, what, the reason we got in the, engaged in the original NAFTA was what, and how does that differ from what we're doing now? Well, I don't think, I think with any tr- trade agreement, you get a combination that's basically economic, but you also have, you know, whether it's the original NAFTA right. or the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There are, geo- examples, there are geopolitical, there are geopolitical right. reasons. And I think with NAFTA, by and large, it was to have a freer economy among the three, three countries. Right. There already was a U.S.-Canadian free trade agreement that had just been right. signed. And then the, I think the thinking was it would it, really great to seal this would be adding Mexico. I think also at the time, ancient as I am, I remember all these mm-hmm. debates before NAFTA became controversial. There was on the part of the Bush, the George H.W. Bush administration, the thought that Mexico was just emerging from a kind of period of one-party uh, <laughs> democracy, if you will. Right. And the, it, it would foster, I th- they thought, as you opened up the, the Mexican economy, it would foster political liberalism as well as economic liberalism. Now, we have found turn that, that is not liberal, always the case liberal as with democracy. China, but I think it is true. You, yeah. I mean, the, Canadian, the Mexicans went on to opposition parties winning back and forth. Uh, I think you, you, know, you had a middle class developing. It's true that it can be argued that the Mexican wage rates have not gone up as much with productivity as one would have hoped. Uh, but by and large, certainly, certainly uh, Mexico is in a better position economically for the agreement. And I should also say that while it, they, these agreements did not were not as um, high level, if you will, as probably the NAFTA, Mexico went on uh, right after this to negotiate a do- couple of dozen agreements. Because Mex- in Mexico's terms... It hasn't worked out that way, and we should come back to that in terms of the political business and the power in the relationship here. Mexico was very concerned of not wanting to be just a part of the United, anything that's led by the United States. So in terms of long-term diversity, in terms of trade and investment, that's why they, they didn't just open up here, open up in, right. for the United States. And that was a big deal in the sense that if you can open up for the United States, you can probably compete with a lot of the other countries that they had agreements with. So that was, that, that was really quite... Uh, I think that really worked. So the, the president, you know, made a lot of promises about trade, and you know, he's sort of rebranding things. He's rebranded NAFTA, but beyond the rebranding, what you know, what is what is the goal of U.S. trade policy regarding NAFTA, other than rebranding it, and making well, it I think it, it, in this case, it is true that the the, the NAFTA is now twenty five years old, and there were. And I just mentioned that you had uh, you had it was well before the internet became important and digital trade became important. So, for me, from my my own perspective, just having there was no provision, no chapter in the original NAFTA on on digital trade. Mm-hmm. So there are things there, and some things in services, some some regulatory uh, issues that. 
that could you that did have updating, and I think that was that's that's positive. Um, but as I said, so much of a lot of the structure, and, and this is good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, my reaction to NAFCA generally is it could have been worse, you know. And there's some things that are good. So th- this 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 updating uh, it w- is a valid thing that I think you know if you'd had Hillary Clinton, she might have turned sooner or later. I think you know it would have been down the road. It's not anything. There was nothing urgent mm-hmm. about it. This was all polit- This all came from from. Uh, uh, Trump's political agenda and the way he won. He right. ran against NAFTA. All right. So and he, he ran he against had to trade agreements. That, that so he was willing to he do changed this. it, or he would uh, say it's completely different now. It's a it was a terrible deal. Now it's a good deal. Yeah. And I'll have to go, go ahead. Well, so I mean, if we were to look at trade flows between the U.S. and Canada and the U.S. and Mexico ten years from now, and then look back over the previous ten years, would it be would it be clear, like, if, and you were look at a chart of trade flows? Would you, would it be clear, like, oh, that's where the that's where the new NAFTA no, came in, or, would, or no, is it pretty much going to be this, you know, uh, you will not. current trends think, continuing? I think what you did have, uh, you have a fairly, you know, straight line, and and it's also dependent on outside things, like if the world economy goes sure. to hell, or we have the financial crisis. But you're not so fundamentally right. trading, but this the is not relationship between these. You countries. aren't at all, and in in a major in a, in a sense of of affecting trade flows. Right. I mean, and that's the flaw. Not only with the NAFTA, but with the with with the Trump's trade policy and for his own personal thing, and that is he thinks that you can affect trade flows, trade balances through trade policy. Right. And no account. We don't have to go through this right. today. I think I think we've the talked about that. will tell you that savings yeah. versus investment and, uh, and and consumption, and you're not going to change it. So the NAFTA will not have any virtually no impact. I think it may marginally do things about automobile production, right. but still, that's not going to be a big deal in terms of trade. Flows. Right. I mean, I mean, after this after this uh, agreement was signed, there were people in the administration and outside the administration, like Steve Bannon, saying, "Okay, great. Now that we've you know sort of fixed trade uh, between these countries, now we can turn we turn our sights on China, which assumes that." You're fundamentally trying to change the U.S. trading relationship with with China, and that this deal is a part of that. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, what do they mean by that? It seems to me maybe what they mean by that is if it's the goal of people like uh, Peter Navarro and maybe Lighthizer. I don't know if this is his goal, but certainly Peter Navarro's uh, goal, the uh, White House economist, to sort of bring you know bring these supply chains, these global supply chains, back to America, or at least back to North America and now and now this will somehow facilitate that sort of repatriation of global supply chains. I mean is that is, yeah, like, is that, is, I mean how does NAFTA fit into the sort of yeah, the whole okay. their whole view of changing how US a, does there, trade. There's a bit to unpack there. Yeah, there is <laughs> I felt like I was going <laughs> on a daisy chain of but <laughs> anyway right. There is, I'll, let me start with the uh, with the NAFTA uh, language. There is something that is directly in NAFTA that is that came out of the blue last week. I don't think anybody that I knew knew this was coming. The the provision no, in NAFTA countries, the, right. the, that that you uh, you we could withdraw potentially if they n- negotiate with a non market po- company. I want to back away from that for a minute because NAFTA is a part, I think, an important part of an emerging administration strategy. And one of the things I think we ought to keep in mind is that. You know, you look at the first year and a half of the Trump administration, it was chaos in terms of trade, other things too, but trade policy. You know, you had this supposed fight between the globalist and the America firstist with him being the America first. You had Mnuchin announced at one point that the trade war with China had been put on hold and 24 hours later we had tariffs. I think though – 
what has happened in, I would say, beginning in the spring, the administration did begin to get its act together on trade. I know nothing about the internal dynamics in terms of the people and how they got. But what the administration has done, and NAFTA is a part of this, is that, you know, it's, as late as April, May, June, we were at war with the trading world, with the Europeans. With it looked, He was still saying we walk away from NAFTA. We were not going to do the Koreans. What the administration has done, they, they had settled with the Koreans before, but they finally sealed it. Right. They have now done the. They have now sealed the NAFTA. Right. They've started talking. I'm skeptical of where it will go, but they've started talking with the Europeans. In other words, they they began to clear the decks to face directly at China, and I think NAFTA has has a history on its own right, but it's also part of something that happened within the administration, and so that you now have. I don't think before the summer you could have said there was a coherent a coherent. Trump trade policy. Right. I think there's the beginning. There's the beginnings of one now. Now, whether this will last, as we said, the NAFTA may not go through. Right. And the, and the, and you never know with a 24-hour period what the president is going to do. And there still seems that there's there are lingering issues in the Europe. The Europe. Yes, I mean all of this. Settled. But at I the mean, moment, you, the we're still talking about putting like 25 percent tariffs on German administration cars. Administration has begun to focus uh, on China now. You know the. A ch- <laughs> A China discussion among us is another is another but, topic. Well, I know, but the NAFTA oh, I do should be part of that. A little bit, but... And this this particular provision, I think it is probably overreaching. I don't know how. I can understand. I'm a surprised. Go ahead. But what? But what is okay? So if we're, if we're refocusing and we're sort of getting, you know, getting you know, sort of the band back together, getting our allies, things, of course, which you know, we're actually the point of the Pacific Trade Deal as far as creating a kind of cohesive sure. front against China. But now we're sort of stumbling our way back into that what is what is what is the point of this conflict with china what do we want them to do is it we just want them to buy more sorghum is it do we want them to are we actually trying to move our supply chains uh, at least out of out of china whether for you know economic or national security reasons what what is it, what is that game now what is the game the you know trade game i think that at least for me <laughs> Um, it's, it's still unclear, and I think it's unclear through the administration, too, and, and it changes. I think at the farthest reaches, I think, and I think – I don't know – there's no reason – there's no evidence that they've thought this out. But there have been these, these, this talk that's floated around in the summer of the United States trying to move – to probably totally disassociate the two economies. Yeah, the, the dis, this is the disentanglement uh, yes, theory. the disentanglement. Now, the, the NAFTA provision could be a part of that. I think that's that's a dream, a, a, a fantasy world, ultimately, because I don't think I think the economies are too closely entwined. In that world, all the iPhones are being made, at least in yes. North America. I mean, and and the thought that you can change. I mean, we were, I was just talking with a group of, of corporate leaders yesterday, and we're talking, and they were conferring. What I said, you know, the thought that you could change, you can say, okay, well, we got this part from China, we'll move to Vietnam. Or Viet or Malaysia, you just don't do that. I mean, right. you don't do it in a short period of time. Is it the labor force? Is there infrastructure there? And so there may be one. Or, there may be some things you can do fairly quickly, but it's not something you can do tomorrow or next year or even several years from now. So, and the other thing is, or if you left the tariffs in place for the next decade. Well, they may very well do. Right. That. I mean, they, I mean that. I mean that. I mean that. If you just you know slap it, on it large tariffs, force, it may force on all the you know yeah. right. But you're still not getting. I mean, that gets us to you know, that's the farthest reach, and as to and then coming back to what they're trying. I think they ought to be. I am uh, uh, very much in favor 
of challenging China. And I think it would have happened if Hillary Clinton were president or... It seems to be Trump. very bipartisan. I think it was time to happen. And the other thing is it's politically popular. That can be very dangerous right. <laughs> in the sense that you'll, you, you could you could sort of overdo things uh, because it's so popular to go against... Running against China, you can't, you can't really... You may lose for other reasons, but you won't lose for that. But I think the, the, the attacks uh, that the United States and I hope the administration has gotten its act together enough to say this, these are the priorities when it's going to sit when it sits down with the Chinese, whenever that is in the next months. These are our priorities. We've talked. Everybody talks about intellectual property and they talk about the joint ventures and things. But there are other there. You know, this is part of a maze of things. You look at the cyber, new cybersecurity law, which going into place last year, and there's now the rules are are being typical of the Chinese. The law is vague, but they're administering it. In it. You, you could you they are now allowed to go into the sweeping definition of cybersecurity. By the way, it includes all kinds of economic sectors we would not think were, were defense related. You can also you can, you can demand source codes. You can demand all kinds of the innards of the technology of a particular company, and the licensing system is terrible. The, the great firewall censorship is still used as a, as a means of industrial policy. And so, you know, it's, it's a wide variety of things that I hope they're going after, as opposed to then we get back to what is the, da- the danger always under Trump, is that he will accept the Chinese offer of last year. That, okay, we'll buy $60, $70 billion more of your goods. Right, right. Uh, and that's the word versus uh, versus a, a, a more comprehensive and deeper strategy yes. of changing how, how China does business. Yes. But again, and I know that, that something... is a long term strategy. If you're saying we we want you to change, here's yes, here's how you went from an extremely poor country to a middle income country, and now we want you to change and do something different. And 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 the way you have done business before has has greatly benefited financially the Communist Party in China. But here's what we want you to become different a more free we want you to get back on that free market path which i think well that but certainly you know starting off but here are the kinds of things we think that not just u.s companies but european and japanese and vietnamese and korean companies should expect when they come to china right they should not of a the soe's getting all kinds of subsidy i mean that that is one of the things a lot one of the things that's argued um, is that the United States, and I don't disagree with this, that the United States, two things actually. One, the United States should depend a lot on the WTO. We should take China to the WTO. Right. And secondly, we should go with allies. I am in favor of taking all kinds of cases, particularly the great fire orphans. There's some, there's some case law that looks as if the WTO might rule mm-hmm. against the great firewall and the way that it's being administered. I'm in favor of, of, of other cases about an ultra party. But the problem is... That the last WTO negotiation was 1994. Right. The internet was a dream at that point. There was very little, if any, digital trade. So the Chinese are right. They're not violating rules. They also have been very – there's very little um, rulemaking or rules in the WTO about state-owned enterprises. Right. So – you, you're just not going to get it's, that. It's not an agreement. And, and the other thing to remember fit. is yeah. that in the WTO, highly political cases can go on for a long time. Boeing and Airbus started, I remember, here when they used to come to me in the mid-1990s. Right. And it is still not not done. So that, the other thing with our allies, I'm willing to, I think, the, thank God the administration has you know pulled back. Uh, from the, at least the war with with potentially with Japan and with Europe and others, but the problem you face, I think, there is that I'm not sure that the Europeans and the Japanese, I'm not sure how far they're willing to go. 
The Europeans particularly are in a, in a bad time internally. It is hard to know how much they will they will actually uh, they will actually move with us, though they're making gestures in that direction. So yes, let's right. I mean, do that. Your goal is to disentangle uh, uh, the U.S. economy and the Chinese economy. It sounds like the goal would actually be to disentangle the economies of liberal, free-trading, market-oriented democracies, more or less, and put Vietnam in there as well, and some other countries aren't necessarily democracies, from, from China. But if, if Europe and Japan aren't willing to go along with this theory, th- then it's going to be much more difficult. That's right. I think Then there's I, other places where, it's, where China it's, can buy tech it's, products. It's exactly. It's so early. We don't know where this provision in right. the NAFTA came, came from. But right. what do you do... About the, our, well, I think the administration our, says it's going to say you're going to. They're going to make them choose. Who are you? Are you? Are you? Yeah, it's I mean, it's, it's going to be like an us. You know, us well, versus I think them. that's a that's make that's, a choice. that's a high risk thing. I mean, what do you do? But particularly with the Europeans, they're right. not going to just the fact that they were being given a fiat yeah. is going to have a would have a reaction. But secondly, what do you do? You've already got the many of our Asian allies are in the regional comprehensive agreement with China already out there. And you've got others that have bilateral agreements with China. Um, The Europeans, are we to tell the Europeans that they're to stop negotiating with China on a free trade agreement of some sort, or even a, you know, just something that's short of a full-fledged or the Japanese, the Japanese are already in negotiations with Korea and China on a trilateral agreement. I mean, I, I just, I, it doesn't look as if this is something that has been real, very well thought out. And it, it is antithetical to try to get allies going along with you in whatever you want to do, either through the WTO or through unilateral action uh, against China. Right. So, you know, that's the kind of that's, – that's a new wrinkle that kind of came out of nowhere last – at least for me. I did not – and I don't think any of the trade community, the trade policy community, no one had, had written, about, or, or, or written about it or knew very much about it as far as I know. It just kind of – oh, my goodness, what is that? <laughs> um, just, just to wrap up here, and I guess it's kind of a big question that, uh, to wrap up with, but it seemed like it wasn't so long ago that – you know, it's sort of a public policy issue. Trade was kind of, I mean, you know, broadly, it's kind of done. We had figured it out. Free trade is good. You know, tariffs globally had come had come sort of way down. Uh, and you know, we had you know free trade. We had free, you know free trade agreements, and then we you know we were negotiating this new free trade agreement with the Pacific, which was really not really about tariffs, um, but other uh, you know other sort other sorts of barriers. And there's a geo, but that the trade issue we had got, sort of got our handle on. And now it seems as unsettled as it could possibly be. What happened? Well, I don't. Th- I think I don't think we had gotten it settled at any point. In the sense that you know, as I said, NAFTA, NAFTA really changed the debate on, right. on trade, and that's three decades ago. I mean, you had you had groups coming out of the woodwork that had never never participated in. I mean, the National Council of Churches, the NAACP, uh, environmental groups had not been there before in the labor. In the labor, in other words, we've had that debate. It never died down. And you have to remember that in terms of the p- politics of things, the Democratic Party from the 1990s through at least until recently, and we'll see how they're, if they are changing, uh, had really opposed all free trade agreements. Bill Clinton, when he turned to favor NAFTA, uh, only in the House of Representatives, 150 voted against him and 100 voted for him. And after that, almost two-thirds or three-quarters of House Democrats were always voting against him. And then in the country, you'd never had this die down. Right. There was always a debate. 
And it was a question, you know, it was a question of whether then you get the whole China effect in after 2001. So it's it's not that we had it solved. I think interesting. I, two two points to finish. One, in terms of not just the United States but the world, it's kind of the dog that didn't bark. In 2000, when we went into the great you know recession and financial crisis in 2008, nine, and 10, 11, we didn't see a repeat in the 1930s. That's exactly right. And I think to that degree, I, you know, I don't think the WTO rules are so binding or people think about them. But the fact that you had a system in place. I think was a deterrent. And the other thing is, I think that the trade had changed. I think the the whole fact that you were really, it's a, it's a trade in parts and components, it's supply chains. Right. And countries knew that if they cut themselves off from this, they would really, they'd be worse off than they were even with the recession. Right. Uh, and uh, I think the, the other thing is that um, Surprisingly, and if you look at opinion polls, uh, Carlin, Keen, Carlin Bowman here uh, does this a lot. If you look at the Gallup polls, is the one that, that I think they use at, at AEI. Surprising support maintain, was maintained uh, both back in 2009 and 2010. It dipped a bit. But now you've got really fairly high support for trade and trade agreements. Now, it depends on how the question is asked. I understand that. But it's surprised that with, with the Trump, for instance, with the Trump phenomena, you still have not had the Amer- the United States public opinion go way down. Within that, there are interesting things that are still working out. Back as far as Bush, Republicans were tending to be more skeptical and Democrats were tending to be positive. A lot of that has to do with the coast for the Democrats, I think. Right. That's where Democratic voters are. And with the Republicans more internally. What was interesting, and here this is for a future right. podcast or something, is that at least until Trump, and we don't know now, Republicans in the House and Senate were very pro-trade. And you still have, even under Trump, while they don't fight with him on it, McConnell and Ryan, the speaker and the leader of the House, are real committed free traders. Ryan on an ideological basis, McConnell on a transactional basis. The, the same thing is true on the Democratic side in reverse. While you see this increasing support for trade among Democratic voters... It has not translated into the Democratic Party, at least in the House of Representatives and even to some extent in the Senate, so that these underlying phenomena have not, phenomena have not worked themselves through the political process. My guest today is Claude Barfield. Claude, thanks a lot for coming out of the My pleasure. It was fun.